Our text this morning will be in 1 Samuel chapter 24, so please turn there with me. Not normally what you would think of as an Easter text, but I promise it it works out just fine. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 24, continuing our study through this book. I've already prayed that the Lord would bless our time in his word, and so I'll just begin. Um, the church, again today, celebrating Resurrection Sunday or Easter as the world of, of Christianity typically sets aside one day during the spring to do that, and I thought it would be appropriate, instead of sharing some sort of movie or video game story, to maybe talk more about a story directly about Jesus to introduce this Text And the story is a very common one to all of us. It's found actually in all four of his Gospels, one of the few stories to be found in all four Gospels. And that is the story concerning the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus, you, know, you, you all know the story. Jesus is there with his disciples. And remember, he had just kind of retreated to this hillside in order to mourn and grieved the loss of John the Baptist, who had just been beheaded by Herod. And, of course, Jesus was close to John the Baptist and his disciples as well. And this was sad. Jesus was a man, and he mourned the loss of his friend. And so here he is on this hillside. Well, the people catch word that Jesus has left town and he is out in the open. And so they begin to swarm him. Because they want healing, they want something from him, they want to be taught. And then what does Jesus do? Well, he heals them, he teaches them all day long until it's time to eat. And the people are kind of wondering what they're going to do. Apparently it's too far away to like go someplace. So everyone's just sitting around. The disciples attempt to gather up some food. And the only thing they can find is a little boy with his food, two fish and five loaves of bread. You guys are familiar with the story. What does Jesus do? He gives thanks, and every single person there is fed that day. The disciples included, everyone is fed. And what happens next? They try to make him king, is what it says in John 6. The people rose up and wanted to make Jesus king on that day, and he had to escape. Why didn't Jesus just let them make him king? Why didn't they just ride, or he just ride in on their shoulders into Jerusalem, overthrow Rome, deliver his beloved country from oppression forever and ever? Why didn't he just do that? Because that wasn't what he was sent to do. That wasn't his time. Jesus said over and over, that I have come to do the will of my Father in heaven. Which was what? The will of the Father in heaven was to sacrifice his son, Jesus, to deliver the people that he had set aside from him for himself from the foundations of the earth. Some of whom were Jews. Some were Gentiles. Remember, anyone who believes who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus 
has the right to be called a son or daughter of God. And so Jesus came to save all those who would call on his name. Those are the ones he came to save. He didn't come to do it by force. He didn't come to do it by making food for everyone. But he came to do it by dying a public death and the public death of a capital criminal, even though he had done nothing wrong. Jesus didn't need anyone to make him king. He was king of kings. But he did wait on the Father's timing for that and purpose in those things. Even though it must have been hard for him, and we'll detail that later, infinitely harder than we know, it was the Father's will for it to be that way. And so in our text today, David is faced with a similar dilemma. Should he reach out and grab the kingdom while it is easy? We're going to find out that it's particularly easy in the text today. He could have done it. Or should he wait on the Father's timing, his heavenly Father? And I think it's a question that we have to ask ourselves, really, as we move through life. We don't, we're not necessarily grabbing out for kingdoms, but definitely our equivalent of that. Whatever it is the Lord has for us that we'd attempt to somehow find a shortcut in order to attempt to usurp the Lord's will and do it our own way. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Today we're going to look at how David and Jesus dealt with that sort of temptation and how then we should. We'll consider this in two points, David waiting for the Lord and then Jesus waiting for the Lord. And so let's look at the text together. You may remain seated as I read 1 Samuel 24, starting at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inmost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. 
For by the fact that I cut off a corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, Out of the wicked comes the wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds, finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done for me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear... To me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. This is God's word. So just a quick review for us. Last week we read about David running here and there, and each time he stopped, the people of the area kind of ratted him out for different reasons, and they let Saul know where he was. But again, this all had to do with just gaining favor with the evil king Saul. When he left off, Saul had. Uh, when we left off, Saul had suddenly went away to defend his lands from the invading Philistines, and remember, kind of left David alone. He had almost caught him, and he was able to escape then. And now in this text, we kind of hear nothing of that event other than Saul's come back from it. He's now taking 3,000 men from around the area to go find David, and he wants to kill him again. This isn't, again, what you'd think of as a typical Easter Sunday text necessarily, but because we're committed to preaching through the books of the Bible, we're going to do this. And because we're committed to the idea that Jesus is on every page, we're going to still talk about his resurrection. And I think you'll be surprised to see how much indeed this text does have to do with that. David's life really is a picture of Christ's life in many ways. And we've pointed that out several times. And I think this story highlights that quite well. And so first we'll look at David waiting on the Lord for his kingdom. So Saul and his men come into this area to find David, and Saul kind of wanders into this cave. You can imagine it says the sheepfolds, they, uh, the shepherds would kind of get in these caves so they could guard the entrance a lot better. It's a lot easier to protect your, your sheep from in these caves. Saul finds one of these caves, and it says he goes in to relieve himself, which is probably a mixture of 
going in to do what you think he was going in to do, like use the restroom, and then probably just going in there to sit for a while to get away from the craziness of all the um, people that he was with. There was 3,000 men, and they all looked up to him. You know, he's, it was a busy deal. So meanwhile, he happens to pick the cave that David and his men are hidden in, watching the whole thing as this all goes forward. It's kind of, you can like hear the music change in the movie at this point. David suddenly gets the upper hand on Saul. And his men are super excited. And they're saying, remember, David, what the Lord said. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it seems good to you. His men were excited. They thought David was going to go in there and slaughter him. All right? He had every opportunity to do so. But the question is, what is it that seems good to David at this point? Well, the text tells us that David stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So he's kind of sneaky about it. Stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. I don't imagine that Saul was wearing the robe at the time. It may have been. It may have been this really long robe or something. But whatever the case, he cuts off a corner of the robe, which may seem like a very innocent thing to us. But there's a deeper understanding here, I think, especially concerning this idea of the robe. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. These are texts that we've already looked at. 1 Samuel 15. There are a couple of instances in this book concerning robes that are telling and helpful for us in interpreting this passage. Look with me at 15 verses 24 through 28. And just to give you a little context, this is after Saul has uh, disobeyed a direct commandment of the Lord and Samuel is there with him. In verse 24 it says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so what did Samuel equate the tearing of his robe to? The tearing off of the kingdom from Saul. Go with me to chapter 18, verse 4. Another picture of a robe here, a little bit more positive. Here we have David and Jonathan together. David is there with Jonathan, and they become close friends, and David just moves into Jonathan's house. And look at verse 3, actually start with verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And so what's going on here? Why would Jonathan do that? Did David not have a robe with him? Not at all. What is Jonathan recognizing? And we see later that Jonathan recognizes. David is the true king. 
This is a shift in power. This is Jonathan's recognition. David, you should wear this. You are the next king after Saul. Well, we see this in the New Testament as well. And we don't have to turn there, but just Luke 15, the, the story of the prodigal son. Remember the son goes off and squanders away his wealth. He decides to come back to the father. He comes back to the father. The father reaches out to him. And what is the first thing that he gives him? He puts on him his robe as a symbol of you are one of mine. You are one of this family. You are not like the workers in the field. You are my son. You are part of the heir to this kingdom. And so David... Cutting off Saul's robe wasn't just a case of the easiest thing to steal from Saul in order to kind of show that, hey, look, I saw him and I could have killed him. That wasn't it at all. Because he could easily have taken something else that wouldn't have required him to, like, saw a piece of his robe off with his sword or whatever. He could have done a lot sneakier things. This is a case of, look, I am out for your kingdom. I could have taken it if I'd have wanted to. Here's the proof. I have part of your robe. And how do we know that David shouldn't have done it? Well, he immediately feels guilty. David is a man of integrity, and he immediately feels guilty. He feels overwhelmed by this guilt. He feels the need to repent of what he sees to be a sin for himself. He refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed, that he struck out against the Lord's anointed. Remember the ceremony where, where the Lord chose Saul. Of course Saul is the Lord's anointed, even though he's been rejected. He's still there. The Lord hasn't seen fit to remove him from office yet or have him removed. But this is the perfect chance to do so. But David was given no clear guidance on what to do from the Lord. So this made him feel guilty. Like he had sinned against Saul and sinned against the Lord. We're even told that David had to persuade his men to not attack Saul. You can imagine kind of the bloodlust going on. We want to kill him. There he is. If you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. Well, the Hebrew there for persuaded is actually uh, tore them apart, cleaved them, uh, meaning that he essentially scolded his men. Don't go kill him. You're not allowed to do this. You may not go do this. Even though we have every opportunity, even though he's been chasing us and wanting to kill us, you may not do this. He was basically essentially putting his men in their place. He chose to wait on the Lord and his timing rather than taking action upon himself. I think we hear a lot concerning this sort of thing today, the Lord's timing and things. You know, we, we hear a lot of different Christian cliches that are said about the Lord's timing and His way He does things. Some people seem to have some sort of inner track on when the Lord is doing things and how and why. I think we, we see this with a lot of the crazy things that people say and post on social media, um, especially uh, this time of year when the spiritual ethos of our society is very heightened And uh, just a few that I gleaned just with a quick perusal for about 20 minutes. I saw some that, here's some. Uh, A few said, uh, heaven has released a yes to your request. Stand with him and his resurrection and receive it. 
Apparently heaven has starting to release yeses for us. Open your heart and receive the relationship God has ordained for you. This is a person posting on social media for anyone. There were several thousand comments from this post, and all of them were, Amen, I receive it. And How does that person know what the Lord has ordained for me? Uh, God has something great for you. Come to my conference. How do they know that God has something great for me at that particular conference? How can we know? How, how do they have the inside track on what the Lord is doing, and why does that particular conference tend to coincide with exactly what God is doing in my life? It's incredible what people do. Sadly, we, sadly, we often want to take every shortcut when it comes to obtaining the blessings of God, whether they are everyday sort of blessings or some sort of big blessing from God, whatever that might be, um, whatever we may think that should be. Um, You want to know the strange thing about our quest for blessings. Well, we can't be any more blessed than we are right now in Jesus Christ. There is no way that he could possibly bless us more than he has currently blessed us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And you consider this in David's situation. David was perfectly blessed. He didn't need to reach out and seize the kingdom. What about us? Are we? Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing He has blessed us with already. Skip down to verse 7. In Him we have, these are these blessings, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him Things in heaven and things on earth. Skip down to 13. In him you also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So which blessing do we have? Every one of them. But I want a new car. But I want a new man or a new woman. But I want a $10,000 check in the mail. What type of blessings are we after? It really gets to the heart of what are we living for? Did Jesus die to give us money? Did Jesus raise from the dead to give us good feelings and good vibes? 
We have every single spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been redeemed. We have been locked away with the promised Holy Spirit. We have the hope of His resurrection from the dead and the promise of His return. We have all we will ever need on this earth and all we will ever need in the new heavens and the new earth. We are complete and therefore our choices should be made in light of the fact that we have been blessed eternally and completely. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Paul shares his concern about this. I mean, you could imagine the early church, right? They are, they are seeking more and more from the Lord. They want more and more from the Lord, but yet what's happening to them? They're being persecuted at every turn. And what does, what does Paul say to them in his prayer for them? Starting at verse 6 of Philippians 1. This is a verse you've all heard. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense of my confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So again, Paul's prayer in the context of the believer being completed and being complete that love may abound in knowledge and discernment that we might know, that we might be able to discern. Even though we've been made complete, what are we being made to discern? That we might approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Lest we at all think that it's from us, he reminds us that this is through Christ Jesus, but he has given us this so that we might be able to affirm what is good for us. Was it good for David to cut off the corner of Saul's robe, then show his prowess over Saul? Is it good for us to reach out and try to somehow rush the Lord's will in our lives by attending these conferences that the Lord will bless us in definitely, like the the person tells us, or by uh, claiming the Lord's promise in our life for whatever it is this person has told us in some post or whatever. I mean, we need to think about this. What is, what is excellent? What is good for us? David reaching out and cutting a strip off Saul's robe wasn't brave or good. It was a sinful act. Because we know it because of the way David felt afterward. 
he sought to rush the blessing of God. God had something much more excellent in store for him, and we see that later. It's the same for us. Let us learn to wait on the Lord. We have every single spiritual blessing in the Lord. There is no reaching out and taking more than what we have. We can't do that. There isn't more than what we have in Christ Jesus. So let us rest in the Lord for what he's given us. The forgiveness of sins. The hope for everlasting life. Continuing on in the text in 1 Samuel. What does David do? Well, he calls out to Saul and he repents to Saul. He explains to him he shouldn't have done what he did. He was sorry for what he did. And notice how Saul's chain or Saul's tone completely changes here towards David. Verses 17 through 21. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good Whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hand or into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? And he says later, he says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name. Out of my father's house. And so not only does he have this massive change of heart, he actually leaves. It says he swore to, to David, and David swore then to Saul, and they went home. They stopped chasing each other, at least for the time being. It's an incredible change of heart. And so let me encourage you to keep short accounts. This is great how David said, hey, we need to deal with this. And immediately repented to Saul, his enemy. Let me encourage you to keep short accounts with one another. As believers, we definitely do that. But even more so, to keep short accounts with even unbelievers. Your heart of repentance will show them Jesus Christ. Because repentance is the primary fruit of a believer. They will see Jesus Christ in that repentance. They will see Christ when you go up and say to them, please forgive me for the wrong that I've done. It's incredible. When you do that to an unbeliever, they don't know how to hear it. They've never been told that. They don't know how to deal with it. And so let me encourage you to keep short accounts even with unbelievers. And it it pays dividends. And so next the next point is Jesus is waiting on the Father uh, for his people. The story of David reminds me of many instances in the life of our Lord Jesus. Of course, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. Another is Matthew chapter 4. Remember, Jesus was tempted by Satan. What did Satan tempt him with? He tempted him with all of the kingdoms of the earth, as if they weren't already his. But it wasn't the time for Jesus to come into that. He waited on the Father. What about in Gethsemane? When Jesus prayed, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Why did he pray that? He was afraid. But remember when they came to get him. The soldier says, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus said, I am he. And they fell to the ground because he said that. He could have delivered himself a thousand times over but went willingly to his death. Remember, he told his disciples that he could call down 
legions of angels because they're at his disposal. Yet he went willingly to the cross for his people because it was the will of the father. Remember on the cross, what did they shout at him? You said you could build the temple in three days. Take yourself down if you're the son of God. And he could have. But he waited on the Father's will. And even think about the tomb. Think about the resurrection. He laid there dead for three days. Why? Why didn't he just get up and leave? Why did he even have death come upon him? Why didn't he just storm out of there and destroy all of Rome and destroy everyone who killed him? Destroy all the people who were guilty of the sin that caused him to die anyway, which is you and I. Because it wasn't the will of the Lord. And it was so that you and I could have victory over death. So that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can have freedom from sin and death and have everlasting life. He waited for the Lord those three days for us. And so in conclusion, what do we do? We see David and we've seen our Lord Jesus. We wait on the Lord. He is good to us. He's given us every single spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He's called us to discern those things which are excellent when it comes to us growing in grace. We hold on to the blessings that we have. We wait for the Lord to come back and take us home. We wait anxiously for that. But we wait. That's the hope that we have. That He is coming to take us home. We don't have the hope that He might do it. We have the hope that He will do it. And we will spend an eternity with Him. And so let us live in light of that truth. Let us live in light of the resurrection, knowing the promises are true, and that we even now have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blessings that we have. We, like David, would reach out and cut a corner of your robe in order to take away the blessings that we think we deserve, but yet you have given us everything. You have withheld nothing from us. We are children of God because of what you have done, because of the grace that you give us, the faith you have given us to have, the mercy you continue to show to us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would return that as we minister to the world, that we would show them grace, mercy, and truth that we will lead them to you, that they might be saved. It's in your name we pray. Amen.